This is Rocks to Roots, a podcast presented by the Spokane Conservation District. This podcast series is intended to share education and resources related to land management, conservation practices, and celebrate some of the great stewards of our land here in our region. Welcome back to another episode of the Rocks Roots podcast. I'm your host, Hillary, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Dwayne. What's going on, Dwayne? Good afternoon, Hillary. Not too much. How are you doing? I'm doing good. You know, yesterday was the first day of summer, and man, what a first day of summer it was. It was beautiful out there. Oh, I bet. To kick off summer with Ray Archuleta? Yes, we did our field day um, with Ray Archuleta and Alejandro, and it was just a beautiful day out in the field talking about soil health, cover crops, um, integrated grazing. It was a fabulous, beautiful day. You're going to have to check out the photos on Facebook. Oh, that's going to be awesome. Heck yeah. Well, I want to start off this episode, first of all, by giving a shout out to all of our wonderful listeners out there. We have just been inundated with so many emails and um, messages from social media just thanking us and talking about the podcast. And really, we want to extend the thank you to you as listeners. Thank you so much for your support. We are just wrapping up season four, and we are going to take a little bit of a break. um, And we will be back for season five. I can't believe I'm saying that. That's amazing. Four seasons down. Another one coming up. Over 40 episodes published. Yeah. And it's all thanks to you listeners. So Thank you so much for your continued support. We're looking forward to season five. If you haven't already, send us your episode suggestions and also make sure that you join the conversation on our social media pages, Rocks to Roots. We have an Instagram and we also have Facebook. So thank you so much for all your support and we're looking forward to um, joining the conversation again for season five in September. Also, crazy emails are welcome. We like to hear some of the best and awesomest ideas. So feel free, let loose. Yes. Well, we have a wonderful episode again today. Today, we have Paul Buckland, the Forest Resource Manager from Inland Empire Paper Company here in Millwood, joining us today. So thanks for being here, Paul. All right. Good to, good to see you both again. And uh, yes, I celebrated uh, uh, the summer solstice, solstice yesterday by greeting the sun as it came up over the horizon at Quarter, quarter to five or whatever it was. All right. That sounds yeah. very fitting as a forestry manager uh, doing the whole druidic thing, getting yep. the solstice nope. out there. I uh, greet the sun. I face, face east and hold my hands out and say, good morning, sun. Greetings and salutations. What took you so long? You yes. Lazy so-and-so. <laughs> I've been up for hours. I've done all kinds of stuff. Well, it's back again today with a force, so keep that ritual up for us <laughs> as much as you can for throughout summer. Well, Paul, let's go ahead and just jump right into it. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you first got started with IEP. Uh, okay, well, I'll uh, uh, start with a little bit of a CV. I, I uh, uh, grew up in many, many places across the country. I graduated high school in, in Marietta, Ohio, uh, but my folks were from Whitefish, Montana, and when I 
got out of the Navy. I was like, what am I going to do? And uh, my parents said, uh, you know, you've always been an outdoorsy kind of guy. And there's this forestry school over here in Montana. You think maybe that might, and, you know, light bulb went off and I'm like, wow, that sounds really cool. So I entered uh, U of M immediately. And uh, from first day, it was like, yep, this is, uh, this is what I'm doing. Um, so I uh, worked uh, as intern summer, summer jobs and whatnot as uh, uh, on the uh, Forest Service and uh, Montana State Parks and uh, the Weyerhaeuser over on the, on the coast for a couple years and uh, Atterbury Consultants uh, doing cruising, cruising timber. So I've been all over the country and uh, trying to figure out where I fit in the industry at large because a forester can wear a lot of different types of hats. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, what do, what do I, what do I want to do? And uh, do I want to be planting trees? Do I want to be building roads? Do I want to be a recreation manager? What, you know, what do I want to do? And I did, and that was a good journey because uh, I realized that I'm a generalist. I'm not a specialist. And, you know, there's some people in the industry and academia that will tell you uh, the, the, the best path is, is, is to be a specialist. You got to pick a specialty. And I went counter to that and said, I'm going to do the opposite and I'm going to be a generalist. So I want to know a, a little bit about everything. Yes. <laughs> and so, um, so I got offered this job uh, in 97. Uh, I was working for Atterbury Consultants at the time in, in Portland. And, uh, and, and while that was a great job because I got, got to see a lot of different country all over the Northwest here, uh, a lot of different forest types and, and areas. And uh, so I came here and, in 97, right after, if, if you remember, there was an ice storm. I was just going to say, was that the same so, year as the ice storm? Okay. Yeah. So, um, and they realized that uh, there was a lot of down timber all over the place and yeah. they were, uh, they, they needed a, a new forester. And so uh, they hired me. And so first, first job was to start cleaning up all the, uh, the blowdown, <laughs> and it was, pretty extensive and so there was a real uh, um, uh, worry about uh, beetles getting into it and so we aggressively cleaned up uh, the dug fir and, and pine we did sort of a triage uh, focus on pine because it blues really quickly and then Douglas fir and so I mean just got thrown into the fire <laughs> pretty quick um, realized that uh uh, this is this is a great place to live, and I. It was just like my first day at forestry school in college. Going, yes, this is the place. I I got here, and I said, yes, this is the place. I, and so that was twenty twenty five years ago. So I just passed my twenty five year anniversary. Awesome! Congratulations! Yeah. Oh, thank you. Was there? Did you do a job in the Navy that prepared you, or got you? ready for forestry? Um, no, I was a, a nuclear missile technician and uh, on the subforce, and I hated it. <laughs> I just did not like anything about the military and that job and, and everything about it. And so let's see, what's the opposite of being on the ocean, being in the mountains, on land? Uh, that's what I want to do. Some, something 
like that. And it's all right. Uh, so it taught you what you didn't like in order to find what you do ex- like. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. It was a uh, well. Let's turn 180 degrees and see what's over there. Those moments are almost more important in a lot of ways it than was, really just getting somewhere and finding your niche. And it, then it absolutely was a, a, a seminal point in my life and a turning turning point. Yeah. So, and you might have mentioned this, but so what was your title when you first started um, with IEP? Was it Forrester Tech? Uh, it was Forrester with the lowercase f. Oh, with the lowercase f. Okay. <laughs> Just a general dirt Forrester. Okay. Um, I don't even know if I had a business card at the time. There's all sorts of derogatory terms, uh, brush monkeys and uh, mud foresters, dirt foresters, grunts. You know, that's that's what I did. I was and I was the youngest person in the company by 15 years. Wow. Yeah. And it was like, OK, then this, you know, we were it was already an old and established company. So mm-hmm. um, and they were on their uh first and second generation of foresters and so I was the the third generation of foresters and I was the kid and so I they sent me off doing all kinds of stuff and got a lot of great experience and yeah it was a blast so let's talk about that a little bit more (coughs) so if you can just kind of give us like a brief history of um, the forestry department and how things have changed from when you started out as the forester with the lowercase f to now being the forest resource manager. The dude. The guy. <laughs> the guy. <laughs> um, yeah, so it, uh, um, you know, the company's been around since 1911. And uh, they, there was a little, little bit of history here. Um, there was a, a logger strike in the 40s uh, that threatened the supply of the mill. And so uh, the uh, upper management at the time at Inland Paper, side note, the president of the company in 1955 was Chester Buckland. Oh, Yes, a distant relative. I, 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 I later found out. <laughs> um, and he decided, well, you know what? We need our own uh, fiber supply. We need our own forest. We can't uh, rely on, on others to supply. And so we need, he hired the first forester, Jim Anderson, in, I want to say, 1948. And he started going around and saying, okay, well, what kind of forest do we want to own? And, you know, productive forests and uh, where and, and all this. So um, he put together a report and, and uh, they said, get to it. Uh, so he started buying land and the first purchase was in Mount Spokane and the upper reaches of, of Brickle Creek. Uh, and that was 16,000 acres in 1952. Um, so for the next 20 years, I, I would say that uh, they were buying buying land and building infrastructure. Uh, and that lasted for, oh, probably t- 40 years or so, uh, or 20, 20 to 30 years maybe. Uh, and I would say that it was more uh, custodial management. There was very little active management and virtually no harvesting, a lot of planting. Um, and they were doing lots of experimenting with planting, uh, planting technology, which back then was, 
you know, n no one planted trees back then on an, on an industrial scale. And we still have this thing called a Lother wildland planter, which is a, a cage that you draw behind a D8 cat that pushes the soil out of the way, creates a furrow, and there's a guy that sits in the cage and drops a seedling in the in the hole and then these two wheels. We still have that. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's no, I, I gotta put that thing in a museum or something. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But, um, or yeah. Store it, take it out for another spin. I could I could take it to you. It's in a secret place. Oh <laughs> it really is in a secret place that uh, I got to put it in a more secure place, but, um, yeah. So, uh, until the seventies and, and then they started hiring more foresters and that's the generation that, that came before me. Um, and then they went through a period of another, you know, seventies, uh, to the nineties, maybe two thousands where I would characterize it as active management. They started doing some harvesting. They got uh, better at, at planting technology or more efficient uh, technology and seed sourcing and, and all of this, uh, getting involved with different groups, uh, cooperatives like seed cooperatives, mm -hmm. which we are, we are a charter member of the Inland Empire Tree Improvement Co-op mm. in 1950 or something like that uh, that started collecting seed native seed of tree species and keeping a keeping a bank of, of seed local seed and different elevations and different species and, and all that mm -hmm. uh, which we're still continuing today in fact I'm the chair of the Inland Empire Tree Improvement Co-op <laughs> nice now I just got <laughs> voted in a couple months ago well congratulations oh. that's awesome yeah <laughs> another uh, hat to wear <laughs> yeah and then I, you know and so uh i came in 97 and then the 2000s we sort of uh, we started uh managing recreation uh quite a bit more mm -hmm. uh got to a point where uh, there's just so many people and, and there, there was some abuses of, of, it was just a free for all. The public was just going out there and building fires and camping and shooting fireworks and doing all kinds of things. And no forward thinking on their part. Yeah. Well, that stuff still occurs. Um, uh, you know, we, we try to manage it as, as best we can, but just, uh, getting overrun with sheer numbers of people. But, um, we started looking at, how we manage our forest more, not as just a timber resource, but rather a portfolio of different amenities and values of which recreation is one of them, wildlife is another, and, and community involvement is, is another. And, and I would say it's more of like managing a diversified portfolio than just a mm -hmm. timber asset management, if mm -hmm. that makes any sense. So that, those are sort of three broad eras that that we went through in our in our history and you know they they start off with zero acres and now we have 121,000 uh, acres and the the claim to fame you know companies have bought and sold land in uh, ups and downs and whatnot but uh, no one point have we had less acres in one year than we had before so if you look at our uh timber base or timber timberland base or uh graph it's up the, mm -hmm. the whole time the whole graph mm -hmm. <laughs> you know so and i imagine those hundred and twenty-one thousand acres that's not all in spokane county 
is it? Uh, no, okay. it's about half of it is. Okay. Uh, uh, well, no, I'm sorry. You said Spokane County. We have about 32,000 acres in Spokane County, uh, but we have... Uh, of that 121,000 acres, approximately 60,000 is in Washington and 60,000 is in uh, Idaho. Um, so if you drew a line from Spokane to, say, uh, Rathdrum to Blanchard, Idaho, um, you, you would encompass about 60,000 acres of our, of our ownership. And we kind of consider that the, the jewel or, or the heart of, of IEP Timberlands. It's the central location, but we do own properties up to the Canadian line in Northport, Washington, down to Kuski, Idaho. And that's, uh, those are some long drives to get there. So what sort of education does, uh, do you have to have as a forest resource manager to undertake 121,000 acres? Uh, school of hard knocks, most, <laughs> mostly. <laughs> um, well, uh, it's interesting you asked that because I asked the same question when I got to IEP. So, so if I wanted to run this place, what would I need? And, and the answer was very definitive and very explicit. You need a master's degree. Oh, okay. So I had young kids and I, and the good news is, is and we'll be will, willing to pay for it. So oh, the nice. companies, I entered uh, university of Idaho master of natural resources program and got about halfway through that. And, uh, and then I got offered the manager, manager position. Uh, the president at the time said, uh, you know, you don't really need a master's degree. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> what? I was told by my boss Just that kidding. I had to have one. <laughs> yeah. He goes, no, you, it was a compliment because he said, uh, I, I, uh, I'm self-motivated to educate myself. And so, you know, I took classes, but I'm, I'm going to constantly, constantly be learning for the rest of my life. And that came through in my work. And, you know, I like to stay up on current research and stuff like that. And that's really the most important uh, aspect of, of being a manager uh, is constantly learning. Uh, so it's not really a degree, I wouldn't say. That's that's less important gotcha. than just experience and willingness to, to learn new things. Mm -hmm. So do you go to any conferences? And if so, to learn what's going on, the new things that are going on in the world, uh, are there any real good geek out conferences that you like to go to? Um, my, my favorite is actually the Foresters Forum, which is a large um, gathering of regional foresters, uh, typically held in, I think maybe always held in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And it's uh, two to three hundred years or two, two to three hundred foresters from across the region gather. And, and there's, you know, two, two and a half days of of. Uh, sometimes technical, sometimes philosophical, sometimes, um, uh, you know, just a, a wide variety of topics. And, and plus you get to network with your, your colleagues in the industry. So that, that's my favorite. But I've, I've been to a lot from road building and road maintenance to cruising techniques and um, um, nursery culture and uh, it's pretty wide and diverse so it's hard to pin down which one but I, I would say the the one main one is the Foresters Forum. 
And I think I've been to every single one since its inception. Nice. They, they kind of asked the crowd this last this last year, uh, and I started in 1999 or 2000. I think I've been to every one of them. And so, of course, I'm I'm now the old guy. <laughs> <laughs> From the youngest to the oldest. I don't know how old? that okay. happened. I really don't. It was uh, you know. Uh, it's like one day I woke up and I've got gray hair and no hair or what hair I have is gray and, and I'm the old guy standing there. You know, back in my day, I hate starting, <laughs> you know, what, how we used to do it because I'm really interested in in how uh, the foresters are doing it now and where they see it going, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and pushing forward because uh, we've the the industry has been slow to change it's a it's a very old and and uh, entrenched industry that that uh hasn't changed a whole lot but the 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 world has changed around us mm-hmm. you, you know so you know in some ways there's some stability to that you know you still grow trees and they still need water and nutrients and sunlight and all, all you know the basics but there's technological advances on on how to manage for us so that that's interesting it's kept me uh kept me tuned in all these years and still still going strong there's that insight where why you only need half a master's degree yeah yeah <laughs> yeah keeping keeping up to date so paul what does your team look like that you manage how many people are under you and what are their positions? Um, I've got uh, five foresters um, that, uh, you know, one is a silviculturist and inventory forester, and, and the others are uh, unit foresters. And they all have their different uh, uh, talents and, and uh, areas of focus and interest. And uh, so I've got one forester that's really good at um, you know, road road construction, road maintenance, and that's really his forte. And mm-hmm. so he takes the lead on, on that and, um, you know, all the way down to a, a young graduate. Uh, she's an intern right now. Uh, and sh- she doesn't really know what her, what her specialty is, but, uh, we're encouraging her to find it, mm-hmm. you know? So, and, and that's, I guess, a, a theme that I've told all my foresters is, uh, find find a way to find your passion and get better at it and be be the master. I want I want them to be their their fullest potential. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm I'm super happy with our team. It's it's a great team. Mm-hmm. Well, that's awesome. Um, so I want to jump into um, kind of the characteristics of the land that you that IEP has acquired um and first of all I guess my first question is how did IEP come to acquire all of these acres of land how does that work well it's interesting because I uh, looked into it uh, deeply a few years ago so I'm look kind of reaching into my memory banks, but, uh, there was some large purchases. There's basically four large purchases in our history that, uh, uh, there was uh, 16,000 acres in 1952. And then there was another one in 1966 that was 11 or 12,000 acres and another one in 
1982 and another in 1991 or something like that that was in the you know 10 to 15,000 acre range uh, so uh, those were four large purchases and that that was only you know what, what is that uh, 30 no uh, 60 ish 50 60,000 acres of large purchases mm -hmm. and those are millions of dollars and those are uh, uh, hard to put together and, and uh, the, the opportunities arise uh, sometimes uh, but the rest of the purchases have been 40 acres 80 acres 120 acres, 160 acres 200 acres you know in that less than a thousand acre someone I, and I've experienced it answered the phone call and and they say I've got I've got 80 acres and you're a neighbor of ours and you know we've always been good neighbors and so we want to sell to you and we want to stay for us not get subdivided so and, you, and we have a long history of that mm -hmm. uh, so I always tell people like if you want it to stay for us we're we're the, we're the owner for you because uh, it will it will stay for us we don't uh, uh, we don't sell land. We're we're a buy and keep mm -hmm. kind of yeah. owner. <laughs> so, talk to us about the best kinds of species for producing um, this fiber for paper, and how do you manage those different species, and what percentage of those are getting planted? Okay. Well, the what the mill prefers in species uh, what what makes the uh, quote-unquote best fiber is typically grand fir hemlock because it's relatively strong it's relatively white and so there's less bleaching cost to make a white piece of paper and and it's abundant uh, here in the inland northwest uh, not so much with Western larch, it's too stiff of a fiber and it's too, uh, it breaks too easy and uh, dark. Uh, same thing with uh, Douglas fir. We can use some pine, but it comes with a lot of resins and it's sort of mid-scale in terms of its brightness. Uh, so, you know, grand fir hemlock is really the, the what the mill likes to consume, but I would like to uh, do some myth-busting or... or uh, debunk a misconception, yes, please. Uh, <laughs> which is that we plant and harvest trees according to what the mill consumes, and we oh. absolutely do not. Uh, in fact, uh, multiple times, engineers, uh, paper makers at the mill will say, "Oh, you're you're planting grand fir, right? For you know, paper for tomorrow." And nope, not a one. Yeah. Not a one. Uh, well, that's not entirely true. We have <laughs> planted some, but very, very little grand fir. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, one is, is there's an overabundance of grand fir in our forests, mm. the forests that we own, but also regionally. And there's a lot of reasons for that, fire exclusion being one of them, selective harvesting being another, that uh, is a bias towards shade-tolerant trees. And they are also very susceptible to root rots and insects and diseases. They're kind of a 
we say that they grow great until the day they die mm -hmm. and they die quickly. And, and what we're seeing right now is um, the, the droughts that we've been having in recent years are stressing the trees. And so you'll see these grand fir that are growing three and four feet a year and then just turn red. Oh. <laughs> They'll get hit with scolitis and, you know, whatever. So mm -hmm. they're stressed from uh, stress from the droughts. And then, and then you add another stressor like, uh, root rot, uh, and then beetles capitalize on that and hit on those, those trees. And then they turn, they turn red. And when they do, it's not just one, it's, it's a bunch. Uh, so we really try to, um, correct an imbalance with our planting. Um, so, when we plant, and I actually have some numbers here, uh, and this is just 2015 to 21, because I was able to grab those numbers really quickly. 34% uh, of our planted species is ponderosa pine. Okay. Uh, it's, it's a hardy tree. It's uh, drought tolerant, and with the increasing droughts that we're seeing, uh, we think that that's important to have some trees that can withstand withstand the drought. Mm -hmm. Western larch uh, is about 29-30 percent. Uh, Douglas fir is only 16 percent of what we what we plant. Uh, white pine being 15-15 percent. So we're a pretty aggressive planter of white pine. And do you know the story of white pine and how it's... No, was, please tell us. No, you don't. Okay. So a uh, uh, quick lesson here. Uh, white pine used to dominate the forests here in the inland northwest. It's what they use for mining timbers and railroads. And uh, it, we built our towns out of white pine. And you see those old pictures of the giant white pine uh, all over the place. And, and this this area, we're, we're sort of, Spokane is on kind of the western edge of the white pine type, you know, forest type. Uh, but as soon as you get into Coeur d'Alene, central North Idaho, that is white pine central. Well, a, a non-native disease came across uh, the ocean in 1920, early 1920s, mid-1920s in nursery stock. It was white pine blister rust oh. and decimated 95% of the population of white pine. Wow. Dead. I mean, they just... They're dead, um, and you could still see the remnants up there in the in the woods today. Uh, these giant white pines and the, even small white pines are very susceptible to this blister rust that that kills it. Well, in 1950s, I'll say I don't know the exact date, but there was a, a forester, uh, a notorious forester, Chuck Bingham, who noticed that we go. He goes into these forest, these white pine forest types that used to dominate white pine, and they're all dead uh, by the 1950s. They're you know just dead. <laughs> I keep saying that they're dead because um, <laughs> I've seen them. They, I, you know, whole forests of white pine snags. They're kind of distinctive snag. Um, he noticed that there was a few green trees out there, and so he hypothesized that they had a genetic resistance to the non-native white pine blister rust. So he started collecting pollen and cones from these green trees and, and sort of collected some industry partners of which we were one of them said, hey, let's go out and collect some of these green white pine that have a, a disease resistance. So we did. And then we formed a, a seed orchard group. It's down in Moscow. It's a, a well-established well uh, orch seed orchard that grows 
uh, disease resistant white pine. And, and also there's a lot of research going into it that, you know, it has, uh, something like five different, uh, uh, genetic mechanisms for disease resistance. So you can choose, we, we actually have these trees tagged out in the woods and they're in a database. And we, uh, in fact, we have plans this summer and, and fall to collect pine off of some, uh, genetically superior white pine on, on IEP property. We got to climb up there and carefully collect the cone and take it to the nursery and do more testing. And, you know, it's classic husbandry, really. It's not, we're not doing, it's not genetically modified or anything mm-hmm. like that. You're, right. just, you're just taking it like, hey, that's a, that's a trait that we want. Mm-hmm. And so we'll breed that tree with that tree and boom, here we go. And so we've got some plantations that, I, you know, we have this uh, creek drainage in, uh, in uh, about a Spirit Lake, uh, Blister Rust Creek which is, oh. you know, <laughs> it tells you what, no, no. What's, what was going on there. And so we have this realized gain trial up there where we plant these disease-resistant white pine. And I was showing this group one time and telling them this old story. And they said, well, that's interesting. Uh, can you, do, what's blister rust look like? Oh, okay. Well, I started looking around and I couldn't find any. <laughs> So I had to actually go out of the plantation into some native white pine and, and, and found a, a, a gall, you know, a, a evidence of, of the rust infecting mm-hmm. the tree. And uh, it has an alternate host with ribes, uh, which is currant, you know, red or oh, black, black okay, currant. Yeah. Uh, gooseberries is another mm-hmm. uh, uh, form of that species. And so the blister rust goes to the, the ribes species and back to white pine. And, and so there's this connection and, it's interesting in the uh, uh, the CCC days in the 1930s and, and 40s, uh, they hired crews uh, to go out there and rip these ribes bushes out by hands, uh, by hand to uh, to you know fight the disease out there because the forests were just dying right and left. Uh, so so get back on track. Uh, we have been. Uh, very aggressive planters of white pine. We, we, wherever we can uh, plant white pine, that's, uh, we'll, we'll plant some white pine to see it's, uh, try to get it back to its former glory. Uh, but to get back to your original question, we don't manage what species we plant and manage for based on what the, the, our paper mill consumes. Okay. We manage for what the land sh- can and should sustain and balance that that we're really after correcting imbalances and mm-hmm. so when you look at our inventory we're very heavy to grand fir and, uh, and douglas fir uh, which are two species that are uh, shade tolerant and also very susceptible to numerous insects and diseases well if you take those two species together that's 50 percent of our standing volume out there is grand fir and, and douglas fir and so we want to correct that imbalance with species that are uh more resistant to disease and also drought and well those are the ones that are hard to reproduce naturally mm-hmm. you know because the cone crops are not consistent mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that those are the ones that we that we plant um the larch and white pine and pea pine are, are the the main species, but also we plant cedar and spruce and, uh, to lesser, lesser degrees. So basically we, 
plant almost all species that you find out there. We don't plant grand fir. We don't plant hemlock. Uh, we don't plant subalpine fir just mm-hmm. because those, you know, it's a fraction of a percent of the, of the right. uh, component of the forest. And, and they're also a prolific seed producer, so you don't really need to plant it. Mm-hmm. Do you have a time frame in order to get the, the forest health kind of back to where it was? Or do you, is there any goals to have a certain percentage ratio there? Uh, you know, of course, we, we, we want everything now. Um, <laughs> and one thing that forestry has taught me, and it's, you know, I don't want to get all uh, philosophical, wax philosophical here, but uh, I, I'm an impatient person. And if there's one thing that I've learned is that forestry is a long game. And so there is, we have to exercise patience. And uh, so, no, we're not going to get there tomorrow, but, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're getting there. Yeah. We're, we're starting to see that balance shift in, in our, the, the managed portions of our, of our tree farms. Gotcha. And so when doing that, you have to go and you have to take some trees in order to get your in order to make some more paper and things and or to keep the health up. How do you know which stand of trees you're going to go to? Is there, is there a time frame or is it just on a rotation? Well, so uh, again, we, we don't uh, grind up trees to make paper. What, what we do is we, and I think you talked about this with, with Doug Kroppis, mm-hmm. our environmental engineer, so I won't go way into it, but uh, we sell our forest products, raw logs, to local sawmills. And they turn those round cylinder things called logs into square lumber. And in that process, they produce chips and, and sawdust and whatnot. And that's a byproduct. Well, that's what we make paper out of. We don't take whole trees and grind them up uh, to make paper. Sorry, that, I misspoke there. My bad. Yeah, that's... <laughs> don't ever talk about that again. No. Um, yeah, that that's just one of those misconceptions that, that we hear all the time. Well, you guys are cutting down trees and grinding them up to make paper. It's like, no, uh, that as, as a lumber product, uh, just, you know, a, a tree standing, your average tree will be worth say, you know, a hundred dollars as, as a saw log to make lumber. And it's worth about $2 as pulp for, for trees. So from a value standpoint, we really should be make, making <laughs> saw logs, not not pulp. And so uh, we do collect um, uh, some, you know, tops, uh, you know, non-merchantable tops and rotten logs. Uh, so those can get uh, uh, chipped up for pulp, but that's a very, very small fraction. So we buy the chips from the local sawmills back. So we sell them logs. We we pretty much sell to all the local sawmills, regional sawmills. And in turn, we buy those chips back on, on the open market. Um, you know, also another little thing, we don't have long-term supply agreements. It's just, we're, we're offering this, we, we have this connection, this business connection with these, these other companies and, and there's synergy there that, you know, we make a byproduct, you know, you make a byproduct or we make a product and you make a product and your byproduct is something that we can use. And so you see this uh, supply network or, or uh, circular economy that if, if you look at other industries, uh, you know, we, we've got logs or trees that are grown in Mount Spokane that flow down, down the watershed via roads. Uh, not not water, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but down down the roads to uh, say the uh, Idaho Forest Group 
mill at Chilco, which is also a state-of-the-art uh, sawmill. Uh, and then those chips from the Chilco mill flow right back to Spokane. And so that's an extremely tight supply circle mm-hmm. uh, in terms of you know, connecting the dots and, and all the different byproducts. So that, that's pretty, pretty rewarding. Mm-hmm. Um, to answer your uh, question a little uh, fuller, I think you asked about rotation age. or mm-hmm. that, So uh, an average rotation age is uh, 60 years. Well, I can grow a merchantable tree in less than 30. I've got some stands out there that are merchantable right now at year 20. Uh, and so we can do some interme- intermediate thinnings to sort of cut the small trees and leave the big trees to grow even even bigger. Uh, but then you get to a tougher site, the you know maybe a south facing slope that has thinner soils and uh, is less productive, like a ponderosa pine site. Those trees uh, they're going to take more like eighty years to to grow something merchantable or more or more sometimes. So it's it's an average. Um, okay. As far as how we um, decide when to cut it. There, there's just a straight up. It, it's merchantable. It's it's of age. Uh, let's cut it. Uh, but we have then there's disease issues, and so we've had some stands that we the foresters are out, you know, driving around doing our work, and we'll notice that there's a. a uh, a beetle infestation or uh, root rot is really starting to eat away at the stand. And so, you know, we, we harvested a stand that was only 45 years old and growing great. It was a Grand Fur stand, a oh. uh, 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 early test plantation of Grand Fur uh, from way back when. And we come around the corner and it was just... 30% red. I mean, it was dying. Yeah. It was just falling apart. And so we had to pull the trigger on that one. It wasn't ready, you know, quite, it wasn't on our plan, <laughs> but we have a, uh, we have a very, uh, robust inventory system that sort of maps out all the different stand ages and forest types. And we've got pretty good information and we have a hundred year plan of that. We're going to harvest this stand this, this year where we, we look at it in five year increments, not, not year. So I couldn't tell you exactly what stand we're going to harvest in 2067 or, or whatever, but we have a plan for the next hundred years of when, and we've, we've validated that, that growth model and we're pretty confident we can, we can grow what we're harvesting now and forever. Nice. Yeah. That's pretty, pretty neat. We can go more into that. That's kind of some exciting stuff that's happening with You technology. got a hundred year plan, Dwayne? I'm sorry. The cops <laughs> don't uh, know. I can't see that far. Can barely keep up with this yes. week. <laughs> So I'm curious, and this might be a silly question, but I, I have to ask. So what happens to those diseased trees? Like, so, is there a, pro- you know, a product? I don't, so I'm typically, uh, you know, if there is a disease in a tree, let's say root rot, uh, sometimes it can take years to sort of slowly, it, it, it it's essentially a fungus that is strangling the root system. Mm-hmm. and uh, it can be slow at times. 
and it can take years. And so trees will manifest that with some, uh, we call it butt weep, or it's just some sappy weeping and you can get some big cone crops and the crown starts thinning out. It's still a viable product. Okay. You can still make wood products out of it. And then when the tree actually dies and, and turns red, let's say uh, it's dead, it's not gonna, it's not gonna revive and sprout back. Conifers don't tend, don't re-sprout like mm-hmm. hardwoods do. Uh, so it's a viable product for basically the clock is ticking. Okay. Uh, you've got in the order of weeks to get that to the mill for them to be able to before it starts drying out and rotting and. Uh, so you've got to, you know, call it eight weeks, say, uh, to get that to the mill and still get some value. Lodge pole on the other, when it dies, uh, you've got you've got a few weeks uh, to get it, or it will start bluing, like this table right here. See this uh, the stain, this blue staining. That's mm-hmm. a blue stain fungus. It's a it's a fungus that rides on the back of the bark beetle of which these holes for your listeners, we're, we're sitting at a beautiful we'll say we'll uh, a photo. <laughs> a custom table that was, was killed by a uh, 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 pine beetle. And so it, the, the, the fungus that's on the back of the beetles gets into and sort of eats the sugars in the, in the sap of the wood and stains the grain blue. And it also puts holes because <laughs> the beetles are drilling through the, uh, through the wood. Well, that becomes a less valuable product. And so, I mean, this is a beautiful table and there is some things that you can do with it, but they're not selling this stuff at Home Depot or, or Lowe's or whatever, some big box store. Uh, the, the blue pine is really a, a, a niche product. Mm-hmm. It still has a value, but it's less so. And it doesn't uh, deteriorate from the structural integrity of the wood. It just looks different. It looks like it's That's rotting. Cool, I, I do. I think so. <laughs> and I, you know, I always say I'm a woodworker too. So I, um, I think the defects are what makes something beautiful. Yes. Like, like the, uh, and then you can, I'm going to wax philosophical again. So the injuries that uh, trees experience are where the defects come from. And when the tree experiences a, a, a wound, let's say a wound in the bark, and the tree's going to try to heal that over, and you'll get this uh, burly grain to it. Well, that's what beautiful grain is. That's where you get figured grain and burls and uh, beautiful grain, basically, grain pattern in the wood. And it's in the wood. It's part of the tree. And I think that those injuries, uh, injuries that that we experience, also physical injuries or emotional injuries, are what makes us interesting mm-hmm. uh, and, right. and beautiful. Absolutely. You know, yeah. no one's no one's perfect. That's you know, it's just uh, the the idea of perfect is a fake con you know idea that right. <laughs> doesn't exist. <laughs> Have you ever worked any uh, any sort of lumber or milling, Hillary? You know, I can't say I have yet. Yet. I will say yet. <laughs> yet, because there there's a mill here at the uh, Conservation District, isn't there? There is. We do have a mill on site. What? Yes. I must we'll see. When, when we're done you. here, I'm yes, going to have to, I've got a sawmill myself. And okay. I've got, a, I've got a little tree farm, Wise Acres tree farm in, in Coeur d'Alene, and I've got a little sawmill, and so this is the type of... Uh, stuff that I mill up too. Yeah, I'll introduce you to Matt. He does, uh, he has a company, Citywood, and so he, that's his, yeah, 
I know all these. Is he an arborist too, or mm-hmm. he's hooked? To, oh, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I gotta meet that guy. You just gotta come hang out here more. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. So, um, you keep saying, and this also might be a silly question, but that's why I'm here. I'm here to ask those silly questions. For I might give you a silly uh, answer. Yeah. <laughs> so you keep saying turning red. Um, yeah. with a tree. And this is a term I have not heard before. So can you elaborate on that a little bit more? It's, Does it literally turn it's red? Just, or you know, like- I, I'm always making these analogies to, to humans and, and trees. It's the trees embarrassed okay, because it's dying. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it's literally the, the needles turn red or brownish red. Okay. In fact, there is a dead ponderosa pine right out there on that little hilltop it's oh, only about 10 I feet see what you're talking about yeah, that's red okay and is red, it the pulling dead. in of the of the nutrients to try to survive from the needles uh yeah it, well it's the chlorophyll no longer being there oh. okay yeah uh, so it's the lack of chlorophyll is what it is gotcha yeah the all more right. you know right <laughs> <laughs> all right paul i'm gonna switch it up on you a little bit here um you had mentioned that iep is pursuing a conservation easement and so tell us a little bit more about that and that land. Um, that you're looking so I'll, I'll start with a uh, description of what a conservation easement Thank is. Thank uh, Conservation easement is essentially uh, selling your development rights. And so if you own something like forest land or, or a house or, or just a plot of land or farm, uh, you have a bundle of rights. You have a right, a water right. You have mining rights. You've got timber rights. You've got the right to sell and uh, and the right to pay taxes on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and all a conservation easement is doing is saying uh, we, you know, there's conservation easement organizations out there of which we've got one. A little shout out to the Inland Northwest Land Conservancy or mm-hmm. our friends yep. at, at uh, that organization. Um, that's in, in Spokane. Uh, there's there's multiple other groups out there. Nature Conservancy is another one. Trust for Public Lands is another uh, that want to see forest land stay forest land because that's one of the biggest threats to forests is uh, fragmentation and mm-hmm. getting chopped up into housing developments and you know things like that. And once you lose it to that, you you lose a lot of the values and amenities that the forests bring us, you know, clean water and all that. When it goes into lawns and mm-hmm. dogs barking and stuff like that, you get less moose habitat and clean water and all that sort of thing. So they are saying, if you uh, sell us the development right, uh, we'll, we'll pay you for the development right, and you can't build houses on that. You can continue harvesting and growing and planting and, and all of that, but it's going to stay as forest. Mm-hmm. So uh, we are pursuing one with the uh, Trust for Public Lands uh, because they have the uh, ability to handle a large one. And and we're talking uh, about 34,000 acres uh, in the uh, uh, Spirit Lake, Twin Lakes, uh, Mount Spokane area. And it's the largest one. It's one of the largest ones ever. And it's if we go to a multi-state one where uh, we we have to approach it in a phased project, uh, phased approach, uh, but the cross state boundary that's never been done before, and so we're our our goal is to conserve the Mount Spokane 
Brickle Creek and Fish Creek watersheds that, that we own and manage as a working forest now and forever that won't be developed because I will tell you that I'm sure you're, you're aware mm-hmm. that uh, land prices and house prices are going through the roof. It's out of control and the, the pressure to develop forest land is extreme. It is extreme. I, 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 and I would say to your uh, listeners out there, if if you want to purchase some of Inland Paper's land, don't call me. <laughs> I don't. I have been not taking phone calls about. I, it's. It used to be, mm, maybe one or two or three requests to purchase our land a year. It's probably once a week at least. Really? Now. Oh yeah. Wow. Oh yeah, and and people want to throw throw money at it, and you know you can take your money and run, and, and some companies are doing that, mm-hmm. but uh, we feel very strongly that that we want to keep it as a working forest. It is a fundamental, uh, you know, industry and value to the entire community to to keep it as a working forest. Absolutely. So it's it's a long process. We're in the preliminary stages of it. It went goes through a um, uh, a competitive grant uh, process, and uh, the first phase uh, rated number one in Idaho. Uh, long long story, but uh, we're we're in the process, and we got to wait for it to get funded and mm-hmm. and all of that, and put it put it together and negotiate the nuts and bolts of of the agreement but basically it's uh not going to be houses or any other sort of development well i give you two big thumbs up for that that's yeah it's pretty exciting yeah uh, it's really it's exciting. Uh, never been done certainly not in our company and to this level and this close to a metropolitan area it's pretty pretty unique well and i was just going to ask that question how often do you guys step in and do these conservation easements? We've never have before. Okay. And so, you know, th- that's the interesting, the philosophy has always been there. Uh, we want to yeah. keep it as forests, uh, but now there's these vehicles, you know, there's tax breaks mm-hmm. uh, available for it, which there should be. You don't just mm-hmm. ask someone to give up their rights for nothing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, and we've always done that. And, and, you know, back to you were asking about the, you know, uh, purchasing land and people calling and say, we want to sell to you. Well, I've said for years, like, you know, we're the closest thing to a conservation easement without actually being there because we will keep it as, yeah. as forest land. Uh, but now we're uh, approaching this from, a, you know, the, the official and signed document conservation easement. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a long, pro- it's years long. I, I've been... We're probably in year two from starting from, hey, what about this idea? Mm-hmm. <laughs> let's let's nail this down and, and make it make it permanent. Mm-hmm. That would take you all up to 250, roughly. 250,000 acres. No, it would. No, it would. It's the same. It's the our existing land base. Okay. We're just saying. It's not going to be developed, so okay. so about gotcha. thirty four thousand acres, and it's a pretty contiguous ownership. It's it's blocked up. It's pretty nice, mm-hmm. um, and we want to keep it blocked up and not not fragmented. Yeah. 
So talk to us a little bit more, and if you can, share some examples um, of just some of these other sustainable practices that you guys have implemented um, to make sure that these forests are around for years. So one of the other practices that we did, so there's a, uh, I mentioned that there's a growth model that we use for for planning, and and the goal was, uh, you know, continue this, now and forever, and I guess I'll I'll tell a little story. Uh, when I was a, a young forester, when I just started with the company. We uh, I was on a woods tour with Jim Coles, one of the owners, and we were looking down into Brickle Creek, and and uh, he walked up to me and said, uh, "So, how's it feel to own a? We owned 110,000 acres at the time. How's it feel to own 110,000 acres?" Well, Mr. Coles, I, I don't own 110,000 acres. You do. Yeah, right. <laughs> and he said, well, I, I want you to manage this like you do own it. And you are going to pass it on to your children and, and grandchildren. That's how I want you to manage this this land. And I, as a 20-something, I thought, oh, cool, really cool. <laughs> uh, but then I walked away, and the more I thought about it, that is so profound. It is profound. Uh, and that has been a guiding principle of we're, we're now 111 years old and our marching orders is we're going to be 211 years old and 311 years old. Mm-hmm. We're, we're going to, we're serious. Uh, we're, we're in it for the very long haul. And so that, that speaks to that, uh, sustainability and the philosophy. Um, so one of the things, uh, uh, that we do to support that. So there's growth models out there. And so we measure trees, we count trees and what species and all have different growth rates and different soil types and species grow differently and different spacings. And, you know, it gets quite complex. Uh, so we've got this computer model. Well, you know, I, I've got this uh, Luddite struck uh, streak through me that doesn't fully trust computers. And so we spent uh, a few years validating the growth model. Like, let's go out and cut down some trees and these different types and different species and and measure them. Let's see what the computer says it was going to grow and what it actually grew. Well, we were very close to what the the model's saying. So, uh, And then you have to add some bit of risk on there uh, for, you know, future regulations that, that restrict harvest or whatever that we can't even conceive of right now. And so I backed that off of, of what the model said that we can grow. And so, so we're cutting less than that even. So we're, we're very confident that we can continue. Uh, so we harvest about 32 million board feet on our 120,000 acres each year. And we're, very confident that we can do that now and forever. And that's from a strictly growth model. But then, you know, what, what is sustainability? And, you know, from a conceptual model, you know what a Venn diagram is? So you've mm-hmm. got these circles. And so one circle is, is you know, biological uh, ability. And then there's another circle that is uh, economic feasibility and then there's social acceptance those are the three circles of sustainability and what you want is you you know you you want to operate in that overlap Mm -hmm. and that is a guiding principle as well and so i think that that uh that's how we stand out from other timber companies we really do pay attention the 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 financial aspect of it that's kind of easy 
you know, as, as dollars and cents and, and return on investment and that, that kind of uh, econometric uh, uh, rationale. And then there's the biology, which I mentioned the, the growth model, and we've validated that. And we know how to grow a tree and we know how fast it grows. But then there's the social aspect, and that's hard to measure. Uh-huh. And so, and it's, it's, it's hard to manage too because. Yeah. It's a moving target, and so we're very involved with our our community. We really feel like we are part of the community. We are. We have been for, you know, over 100 years, and we mean to be a part. And and by that, I mean an active and engaged uh, participant in the the community. And that's kind of where our recreation program comes from, too, because, well, you know— we've got this resource and we want to share it with our community. And, and I believe that the, the recreation is, um, is, is the forum or the platform to interact and engage with the community. So they know where their wood products come from. You know, Mm -hmm. that, yeah, I've heard this story multiple times. I don't know how true it is, but they canvassed fifth graders or something like that and said, uh, where, where does meat come from? And they say, Oh, the grocery store. And they had no idea that it used to be a cow or, you know, that, that scares me yeah, that, that the wood scary. came from a tree and, you know, you had to cut a tree and it's not bad to cut a tree. And so, right. uh, the recreation is sort of the, uh, easiest to interact with the public because that's what we like. We like to recreate in our forests. And guess what? We've got Spokane here, you know, near nature, near perfect. Well, that's we're part of near nature and so uh, that's how we use our forest lands to engage with the public so they see forest products rolling down the uh, rolling down the road and going to the sawmills and and building the the warming hut at, at Mount Spokane and you know that's where it comes from it's the circle of sustainability it's 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 it in action right mm-hmm. and what are some of those recreational programs Someone told me that there was a, uh, I'm looking for a deer this year. And someone said IEP land might be the place to find it. Uh, yes, uh, we, we do have uh, a lot of deer. Um, we're also uh, well known for our moose population. And I can you know, talk about there's reasons for that from a biological standpoint. But um, the, we were one of the first companies to institute a recreation program. Uh, management program or a fee access program that is to uh, so the uh, john q public can go down to a vendor that sells their permits and they they buy their uh, permit and they can cut firewood or hunt or sightsee or collect huckleberries uh, mount spokane is a um, don't tell anyone i was like yeah, keep this a did secret did you see my eyes just get so yeah. big okay it's just between us the huckleberries and just due east of mount spokane on iep property is huckleberry central oh my <laughs> like, god i can't okay. tell you much more than Your that secret's safe with us. <laughs> that's where you want to go so don't tell anyone mm-hmm. else lips are sealed <laughs> Um, so yeah, so uh, that that program's been in place for for twenty years because, you know, uh, you know the, the the public doesn't like hearing this, but you know, they're difficult. <laughs> they are. Uh, you know, we we and I include myself. Uh, we the public tend to love something to death and we'll overrun it and yeah. you know just 
overwhelm a system with sheer numbers. Oh, yeah. And so we had to get her, uh, get it under control and, and uh, get a handle on it. And a lot of companies, their initial reaction is slam the gate and lock it mm-hmm. and, and tell the public go, go somewhere else. And uh, my, my predecessor, uh, Dennis Parent, he was a visionary in this respect and that he said, you know, this is, this is how we need to, we need to manage this recreation. And so he instituted that program in 1999 or 2000, something like that. Okay. And it was the first one, first one in this area. It's been done in other parts of the country, but not around here. And there was some initial, uh, yeah, uh, resistance to it. You can't tell me that I can't. I've been coming up here and shooting a deer on your land for 30 years, and you can't tell me I can't. Well, okay, I guess I can buy a permit, you know, because that, and, and the permit fee helps defray the costs of patrols and gatehouse sites and yeah. and all that. It, it it doesn't pay for it only fully, yeah. but it does uh, defray the costs anyway. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's... Uh, you know, and there's there's trash and and you know rampant ATV use and motorcycle trails, unauthorized motorcycle trails. Mm-hmm. That's it's frustrating. You know, pick a bath yourselves. Yeah, yeah. Pack it in, pack it out uh, for sure. Um, or or just be respectful of other other people's property and other company's property but it's uh you know see you know it's kind of hard to uh blame people to have that mindset because i just saw the uh a commercial for uh I won't say the name of the company, but it's a well-known <laughs> company that produces ATVs, and they were showing uh-huh. a commercial of people running through wetlands and streams, and like, woo, mm. they're all covered in mud. It's like, dudes, it, you're destroy. teaching people how to destroy a wetland. Yeah, Don't do it. And, and people are out there like, no, this is what we're supposed to do. Yeah, oh. the commercial said. Oh, I got, I got <laughs> contacted by... A company that wanted to film a commercial on our land doing exactly that. Oh. Uh, Brodying through a brick, main Brickle Creek. And I said, absolutely not. And in fact, yeah. I am disgusted with your commercials. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's my own soapbox. It drives me bonkers. <laughs> that's a good soapbox right there. More people yeah. do need to be aware of that. Yes, for sure. Yeah. So, um, I would like to ask you, Paul, so you've been with IEP for 29? 25. 25 years. Yeah. Okay. I knew it was in the 20s. Still um, going 25 strong. Years. So, 25 still yeah. alive. <laughs> so how has your philosophy just with everything forestry changed from that very first day that you sat down at your desk as a forester with a lowercase f to now? And what what aided in maybe those changes and maybe it hasn't changed at all. Um, well, I, I would say that it, it hasn't radically changed. Um, I, fundamentally. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I would say, um, uh, my focus used to be on, uh, growing trees and efficiently growing trees. And that's why I became a forester because I love trees, 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 all about trees. Well, now I have more of a, you know, I think we want to grow foresters as well as forests. Yes. And 
other professionals that that are uh, have the heart to uh, and and the drive to want to you know do good and be part of the community and grow forests and manage forests and and so I really try to encourage. Uh, foresters and even high school students uh, to, you know, you want a dream job? Forester. Yeah. You know, again, don't tell anyone this, but a, the job of a forester is the best job in the world. You know, paid to go out in the woods every day? Uh-huh. You, you're going to pay me? Oh, I would do my job for free. Shh, don't tell my boss. You know, don't. it's so funny that you're saying this because I was just at a work conference and one of the educators from another conservation district um, in Washington state was telling this story about how they went out to a forest stand and they were talking about it and little kids, I mean, I think it was maybe like a third grader and they were talking about what they do and they said oh we come out here and you know we pick up the seeds and we pick up the cones and stuff and the little girl looks at him she just goes that's a job like so excited oh, yeah. it was just like oh little forester in the making right yep. there <laughs> uh, when i was working for the forest service up in the selway river uh early in my career uh i was doing sensitive plant surveys and so it, the job was literally walk out into the woods and if you see a rare plant record its location and tell us we're like <laughs> oh, oh okay sign me up <laughs> yeah i will do that uh they actually told me one time this is part of the reason why i don't work for the government uh they told me to slow down oh yeah and i'm like oh easy easy you're gonna work yourself out of a job you know they gave me like two thousand plots to do in the summer finished it halfway through the summer and they told me to slow down i was like well no i'll do four thousand plots five thousand plots give me give me more I, I i'm all about it and so yeah it was fun it was fun but also i was learning all these things about uh active forest management that uh that i wanted to go out and practice and that was in the early 90s and the Long, long history there, but uh, the Forest Service was shutting down and active management was not going on in the Forest Service and it's bureaucratic red tape and litigation, all this stuff was going on that, you know, I, I want to practice forestry. And that's what, and I guess back, back to your original question, you know, one, one of the things that uh, I, I had this thought as, as a young, uh, young man going into uh, forestry that, uh, I got into it for conservation, and so there was there was two schools in the University of Montana at the time. Still is, I, I believe, uh, as there is in other forestry schools. That there's the the school of conservation, you know, forest conservation, and then there's forest management. I have changed my philosophy on that, and that active forest management is conservation. They are. They're two sides of the same coin, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, that if you're actively managing a forest for the long run, for the greatest good of the greatest number of people, that that is conservation mm-hmm. in a nutshell. That's what it is. Yeah, absolutely. You're you're conserving message. the value of of the forest, not just in dollars and cents, but. Um, uh, you know, for all all th- socially and environmentally and. Mm-hmm. 
So I want to give you the opportunity to, because I think there's maybe, and I, I know that you've debunked some of them in our interview, but are there any other myths or anything about the forestry department that you want to debunk right now? <laughs> no, pass. Next question. <laughs> um, I... <laughs> Sorry. Well, this I was really nervous about this, but this is easy. Yeah. I should have been passing on all these questions. Uh, debunk myths. Of, um, well, uh, you know, one, one of the things that uh, uh, we hear uh, a lot of times is uh, we're, we're growing monocultures out there. And, and mm -hmm. that's just, you know, okay, the, the few times that we do plant a single species on a site, reforest with a single species typically a ponderosa pine because it's drier and and harsher uh you know because it can't support other species but that said there's there's this thing called natural reproduction you know those trees produce these things called cones which have seeds right. with which drop down and and you know, you get, so we go into plantations, we'll have the trees that we planted, and then there's the natural seed fall from from trees either in the unit or next to the unit or, or next to the stream and uh, that are throwing seed. And so we, I just looked at one uh, just the other day that we planted four different species on, we planted four different species. We planted white pine, cedar, dug fir, or no, sorry, um, spruce and and larch and i was showing these folks this and they said oh god well, i thought you only planted one species and there are uh some foresters out there that oh well the most efficient way to grow a doug fir is to grow all douglas fir on on this site or, or whatever well the reality is is that you get this uh wide array of species that grow in a plantation both natural and and planted and that's a good thing the mm -hmm. diversity is a strength it's not a weakness and i would say that about us humans as well yes. diversity is a strength not a weakness and so we need to encourage diversity mm -hmm. not you know dumb it down to a, a single how boring would life be if we were all the same you know the same thing about a forest you know we we want a diversity of species and spacings and structures and ages all that mm -hmm. are you gonna write a book a nice philosophy book forestry of zen say, man you got some really uh, i've i've thought about it and i have i i have done some writing uh i've i submit articles and have gotten a lot of good response from it uh principally to the uh northwest woodlands magazine okay. uh, which is a, a magazine that's geared for uh, small forest landowners. Uh, so we, I get to spout off about philosophical stuff, and I got a few funny stories that I tell in there, and I've gotten a lot of positive response from it. So I, I might do more, but writing is hard. Yeah, coming up with <laughs> words that you got to write down—it's it's hard. Yeah, and it's got to have a flow to it. And well, you just yeah. hire that part out. All you got to do is come up with the ideas and the philosophies here. Um, I, I, another exciting—you know—I just mentioned the Northwest Woodlands Magazine. My wife just got just accepted the job of the editor of the <gasps> Northwest Woodlands Magazine. So oh. I, I told her, I said, "Hey, don't be going to the Bucky Well." <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, what's your wife's right, name? Right, Jill. Jill. Yeah. Well, we yeah. got a shout out to Jill. Congrats, Jill. 
yeah, she's <laughs> super, she's all smiles and that's yeah, awesome. super excited about it. Cause we, you know, we, we play together on our, on our tree farm and play with trees and it's just a great fit. Mm-hmm. So oh. we're pretty excited about it. Well, Paul, to kind of wrap things up and in closing, tell us what is on the horizon for IEP's forestry. Well, we're we're we just started a pilot project. So, uh, do you know what lidar is? Light detection Gosh, and ranging. Okay. Which is basically, uh, in in a nutshell, it's a plane flying, you know, mile or so above the forest and shooting uh, laser beams at the rate of sixteen pulses 16 laser pulses per square meter okay that's a lot you know think about it square meter and 16 laser pulses and so what bounces back you know of course the top of the tree it's going to bounce back and Mm -hmm. measure that as a data point and then there's you know the second return and third return and and then the last which is the ground uh so it's a and you get this point cloud that that you get a picture of trees and you can measure trees that way and, and get a picture of the uh the structure of the forest and what species and all that so we've got a pilot project that we're flying uh, as we speak uh and shooting lasers down in in uh, st mary's and measuring uh our entire ownership down there some twelve thousand acres twelve thousand and twenty 12,500 acres down in St. Mary's. So we will get not just a sampling of the trees, which is a traditional uh, cruising where you go out and you swing up, you know, one one hundredth acre plot and, and record all the trees in that in that plot. Now we get a tree census, all the trees, like 100 percent of the trees, oh, which is wow. it's 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 out there. You know. it, oh, yeah. Times. I'm pretty excited about what we can do with all that data yeah, <laughs> no kidding. yeah and it's a if you look at these uh, uh you know picture representations of uh, you know the, the the dot cloud or mm-hmm. the data cloud you see the forest i, I mean you see, oh, there's a tree and there's a tree and they've got these uh artificial intelligence uh uh programs that teach a computer how to identify the species of tree and so they can tell the difference between the larch and the and the douglas fir and the cedar from one of the things is there's there's like 150 different ways that you can identify a tree uh with a with a computer but but one of them is uh, one of the most important ones is the branching architecture and we know this that you know when you how do you identify a tree well it well it looks like a pine well what what is it about it that makes it look like a pine well there's the needle length and the uh the branching architecture and the uh, branch angles and all that stuff well you can teach a computer to do that from a mile up with a a whole bunch of lasers so that that's kind of exciting and i I can't wait for that doing that like mind blown Right. <laughs> oh, I, so another another product that comes out of that is that so there's the data cloud that is the vegetation, uh, you know, and, and if you see a picture, I wish I had, I should have brought a picture. Uh, you, you see the trees and the brush and grass and, and all of that, but then you can delete 
the, the, the vegetation cloud and get a very fine grain detail of the ground. And you can see uh, minute undulations in the ground that, that just don't show up in a you know, classic USGS quad topo map. This is, you know, light years ahead of a USGS quad. I mean, you can see elk trails and uh, um, old old slumps and uh, uh, side side slope seeps uh, in the drainage that you, you just don't see on a map. I mean, you can go out there and go, yep, there it is. But now you've got this. With a flyby. Yeah, with a flyby. It's crazy. It's You should see some maps. It's, it's pretty mind-blowing. Wow. Yeah. Well, Paul, this has been such a great episode. I'm sure glad that we gave you and Doug your own episodes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we, we, we joked about the, the Doug and the Doug and Buck show. Yeah. Uh, and Doug and I are good friends and coworkers and, and we, we hang out together on, on weekends and saw up lumber and, uh, play with trees. And, and, uh, we always joke about, it. we're just bantering back and forth always all the time. And it's just a joy to work with someone that you, you know, truly like it's not he's not just a colleague he's he's a good good friend of mine so it's like well is it the doug and buck show or is it the buck and doug show so i came up with the bug and duck show (laughs) there you go Uh, yeah kevin our boss calls us uh, clown one and clown two (laughs) hey brennan you know they may have something something going Well, Paul, we can't let you out of the hot seat without um, doing our spitfire round and letting our listeners know a little bit more about I, you. I just spit, spit. <laughs> so, you ready? Mm-hmm. All right. Let's rock and roll. I'm curious, what's your favorite candy? Pass. Next question. <laughs> oh. No, you can't pass in the <laughs> I can't, spitfire. Oh, I can't spit. Oh, jeez. Uh, favorite candy, I have to just put it in the chocolate uh, Reese's Reese's cup Reese's yeah Reese's guy. it's two great tastes it tastes great together really yeah thank you Reese's I'll accept my check later <laughs> exactly <laughs> which favorite type of timber to work with timber um you know I, I'm very partial to the the western larch uh, I just it's a it's a beautiful tree and just you know where it grows it tends to grow in deep soils and it it just has a lot of qualities that i i enjoy Uh, it turns gold it's the only deciduous conifer that that grows in north america natural uh grows in north america so that's the tree that turns gold every fall probably mid late october turns gold and loses its leaves uh and then re-sprouts the next spring and it's just uh, to me, that sort of encapsula- encapsulates uh, uh, sort of a philosophy, a, a birth and regrowth sort of cycle mm-hmm. that uh, it just speaks to me. The phoenix tree. Yeah, it, it just it, it just lights the hills on on fire. It, it's just and it's a fire adapted species too. Oh it, it, yeah, it's uh, resistant to fire. It grows thick bark and actually the losing the leaves, the needles is a fire adaption so if it uh, experiences a, a stand replacing fire if it singes those needle needles it, it drops those needles and will grow some more you singe the needles of of any other species and it turns red and doesn't re-sprout mm. well thank you for also giving us our fire wise tip of the day yep. <laughs> 
Um, okay, if you could meet anyone dead or alive, who would it be? I would say Gifford Pinchot. And I'm not familiar, so... Uh, what, what building are we in? The Spokane Conservation District? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Gifford Pinchot is the father of conservation, really. Okay. Oh, him. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, oh he God. was uh, instrumental in, in setting up the National Forest System okay. uh, under uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, oh. And I would, you know, I'd throw John Muir in there, too. There you go, uh, those those three were really uh, ahead of their time, uh, and they had some differences, but yeah, I, okay. any one of those three. All right, so I got to ask this question: As you were the youngest, and then you are now one of the older, what's your favorite emoji? <laughs> what's an emoji? <laughs> <laughs> those little characters on the phone that you can. What's your phone? Uh, <laughs> okay, I'm kidding. Uh, I don't. Um, I guess the uh, s- smiley emoji. Uh, I don't. You know, it's weird. So, um, emojis of vegetables and things like that mean different stuff now. Yeah. I've come to find out. Oh, we found out on our last podcast. It's like, I'm I'm afraid to emoji anything (laughs) because it will mean something. I don't even know what it means. Like a, uh, you know, what was the eggplant? Yeah. (laughs) What? I, yeah. So I, I don't know. I'm not technologically driven. I, I have a adversarial, relationship with my phone I, I, oh, I don't enjoy my phone I don't I don't sit there and caress my phone all the time I like interacting with people yeah. not not my phone there you go Heck so I yeah. put it I put it away and I let I routinely let my phone die and go oh well it's dead I can't I can't send you an avocado emoji <laughs> yeah whatever that means <laughs> I don't know if the avocado has anything yet, <laughs> but okay. So finish this sentence on the weekends when I'm not working, you can usually find me working in the woods, working in the woods. Yep. Okay. I, my, I do it morning, well, you mentioned morning, you morning noon, Yeah. Um, I broke it a few uh, weekends ago <laughs> uh, overusing it. So it's, it's, uh, I need to repair that. But uh, I did spend the weekend doing some pruning and, and thinning and preparing for fall when I do some burning. So I got a lot going on on my little tree farm. And I just, it's my, it was Father's Day. And I'm like, well, you know, what do you do on Father's Day? Uh, my son, uh, cooked a nice tri-tip and so and i spent the day in the woods playing with trees nice it's what i like to do all right and the final question we always have to ask our guests the beatles or the rolling stones well beetles eat trees so i'm not <laughs> too keen on those and rolling stones although technically erosion does eventually turn to soil which is nutrition for trees so i'd have to go with rolling stones i love how you just turn that and we have not had anybody you know be witty about it there with us so. what do you mean what a turn great it. way <laughs> turn it what and way straight face is the best part exactly too. Like, I'm over here I know. Like, you have see the, the confused look in my way. face i don't <laughs> yeah. know 
Well, Paul, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. Um, let our listeners know if they have any questions for you or anything like that. Is there a way that they can get a hold of you? Well, you can check my Twitter feed. Yeah. <laughs> or handle. It's I'm not sure what thing to call it. Yeah. Uh, snapbook or handles are whatever. Done, right? We can't call them handles anymore. I don't know. Are they? That was back in the 80s with the hacker movies and everything. I'm not sure. I'm just. You're asking the wrong guy. I don't know. Um, I, I, have, here. I, <laughs> I have I have found myself gone. lost in the woods. Yeah, I found myself. Yeah. Um, uh, my email, I, uh, Paul Buckland at iepco.com. That's about it. I don't I don't have a Facebook or anything like that. Right. Uh, I guess people can uh, get onto our website iep iep iepco.com and they will eventually get to me mm-hmm. if there's trees in there somewhere or our IT person like yep you're tree guy so yeah. you you get all those questions so yeah. Well, thank you so much again, and I'm so glad to have you and Doug on here just talking more about IEP. What a great entity here for our community, and thank you for everything you do to make sure our forests are here for the generations to come. Well, thanks for having me on. It's been a blast on this newfangled radio program. (laughs) What what do I turn my transistor radio dial to? 86.3 a.m. The tree. (laughs) (laughs) Rocks to Roots is sponsored by the Office of Farmland Preservation. Office of Farmland Preservation is a program within the Washington State Conservation Commission that works to address the rapid loss of working farm and forest lands in our state. Together, the Washington State Conservation Commission and conservation districts provide voluntary, incentive-based programs that empower private landowners to implement conservation on their property. You can learn more about their programs and services by visiting their website, scc.wa.gov.